Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I'm here today with such an inspiring gentleman. His name is Tony Courtney Brown, and he has inspired me personally through his journey and what he's actually been through in life. But also, interestingly, he's a great entrepreneur and businessman as well. So he's the founder of Total Body Health. And we are going to talk about that and how Tony's journey has actually led him to where he is today in his business life as well. So welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you, Jeanette. It's great to see you. Lovely to have you on. Um, so, Tony, uh, we've known each other for, for a little while. And as I say, your journey has inspired me personally. So I think it would be great if you could also share that with our listeners uh, and anyone who might be watching this as well. So do you want to go for it and take us through your life to date and how things have shaped out for you over the years? Okay. Right, a quick gallop through. Um, I was born in Northampton 63 years ago. And the first year of my life, I was apparently fostered through a number of different households and parents before at the age of one being placed with a Dutch family um, who then I remained with until I was six and had a wonderful life. Started off living in a prefab, my earliest memories, and we had a flower nursery. So for as far as I could see, from the age of, it must have been about two or so, all I saw was miles of daffodils and crocuses. So those are my only me earliest memories, which was lovely. Then, as I grew older, um, I started school in Bristol uh, at the age of five. And I was coming back from school, I think I was that day, and people started shouting words at me, the N-word and calling me darky and other associated names. And I did not understand it. Got back home, got in the bath and got this stuff called Vim, which some people might remember. It's a scouring powder and a scrubbing brush and started scrubbing myself. And my foster mother came in and said, what on earth are you doing? And I explained to her what had happened. And she said, first wash all that off, gave me a huge hug and said, don't let those stupid people ever upset you again. She was great. Now, at the age of six, I was returned to my birth parents who were complete strangers to me. I didn't know who they were. It was Mr. and Mrs. Brown, as I knew. And it was very difficult because, one, it was traumatic being wrenched away from my family, as I thought, and then being placed with my birth parents. So I had two shocks within the space of a year. One, learning that I looked different to other people, to my family, as I thought they were. And then secondly, being placed with people who were complete strangers, but were my birth parents. That caused a lot of friction and a lot of trauma, as my dad was very, very angry and upset because I didn't behave the way that he expected. And his response was to give me a good thrashing every time I did not meet his expectations. One of which was being told from a very early age, you're going to go to Cambridge, you're going to be a lawyer. I didn't even know what that meant, but I was told to repeat it whenever I was asked by anybody. Um, my dad's background, I think I have to say a bit about that, was also quite interesting. He grew up in Jamaica, had to run to school three miles every day in bare feet, as he was fond of telling me. But from that, he got a scholarship to a technical college and then to Toronto University and then to Nottingham University over here. 
where he got a degree in chemistry and agriculture. But this was the 50s, and the only job he could get was as a guard on British Rail. And he then went from that to being a vacuum cleaner salesman. And he took me out occasionally when he was doing this, and we would just have doors slammed in our faces. But it never seemed to affect him. He just went to the next house and he kept going. And when he got a foot in the door, he sold. I don't know what it was. He just had this personality and he'd get the vacuum cleaner out and he'd talk and he'd talk and it was done. And I don't know if that, some of that rubbed off perhaps, I'm not sure. Um, but that's how he was. Then he had a really bad car accident and he didn't work for a long time. And I think a bus hit him and rolled his car down the hill and he had a stroke. Now, as a result of that, he got a considerable amount of compensation. Now, he and my mother never got on. They used to fight like hell all the time. She'd never have been married in the first place. And he had lots of mistresses and women all over the place. So that, that was a pretty difficult thing to watch a lot of the time. Then he had an idea to set up a club. So with his compensation money, he set up a West Indian club. And so West Indians from all around Northampton area, Bedford and further afield, came to his social club, which sold drinks, had parties, uh, sold food and had slot machines. From that, he hit upon some idea about charter flights. And so he then somehow set up a charter flight business, which gave all these people a cheap way, about half the cost of British Airways flights, to go back to the West Indies for holidays. Now, he used Air France, he used Air Jamaica, he used British Airways themselves in the end, and very quickly made a huge amount of money. Um, then it came time for me to put the 11 plus, and I didn't get it. And my dad was furious, and he went to see the headmaster of my primary school and said, why didn't you get through? And the headmaster said, well, he's bright, but not intelligent. And that just stuck. And my dad was furious. And he said, well, he's not going to secondary modern. So the headmaster said, well, the only option you've got is to send him to a private school if you can pay. I go, yeah, of course I can pay. Where? And so he found a school to send me to, and off I went. Um, I was delighted because I couldn't stand living with my parents anyway. And um, it was a big adventure. So the summer holiday before being sent, I found all these books um, on Billy Bunter and Jennings and all these people who went to boarding school to find out what it was like. Got there and found that it was rather more difficult than I thought it would be, and not quite as it was appearing in the books. One of the things, obviously, was that I looked different. I was the only black kid in the school, and I spoke differently. People couldn't understand what I said. My accent was, I suppose, a mixture of possibly a bit of the Dutch accent, which I grew up with. And then, because I was brought up in Bristol, there's a bit of a West Country thrown in there. And then maybe I'd taken on some of my parents' accent as well. So if people could not understand what the hell I was saying, and they teased me mercilessly about that as well. Then I came across a guy who I thought spoke absolutely brilliantly, and I just emulated him. And I copied and copied and copied. And I was also very good at English. I mean, even when I was at primary school, when I was seven, I had a reading age of 11. And so that was always my favorite subject. And listening to this guy and then picking up his accent so that people wouldn't tease me about how I spoke and it stuck. And that has had advantages and disadvantages throughout my life. From there, I went to a minor public school and when I was about 14 or 15, I came home from school and the house was all locked up. By this time, my dad had sort of uh, put two fingers up to everybody. He bought a large plot of land in the most exclusive village in Northamptonshire and he built a house with a swimming pool and a tennis court and he's got me a private school and, and he's giving two thumbs up, sorry, two fingers up and a thumb, thumb nose to everybody. They even put up a petition to try and stop him buying the land. But that, of course, just made him even more determined to do it, which he did. Um, then I came back from school one day and the house was locked up. 
and there are all these padlocks around me. I didn't understand what had happened. The place had been repossessed, which I now understand. Um, my mother had gone, my father had gone, didn't know where they were. And so I rang my best friend from a phone box, remember them? And luckily I remembered his phone number and said, I don't know what to do. And he said, stay there, mum will come and get you, which she did. Now, the first couple of years at that boarding school were quite horrific in terms of the bullying and fagging and so on. But as I sort of got more friends around me, it became a bit easier. The first year I won prizes for English, ancient history and geography, and then I lost it. And I don't know quite what happened, but then I became depressed. And so I was sent to see the school doctor who put me on antidepressants and sleeping pills at the age of 14, which I carried on with until I was 61. It's 45 odd years on antidepressants and sleeping pills. Um, when my friends took me in after the closure of my house, they kept me there until I was old enough to go to college. And the other strange thing was that my dad, because of the way he ran his business, instead of writing a check for my fees, like most people, he just gave me a wad of cash and said, go and pay, pay the bursa. So of course, which I would, and I was the only kid in the school, the only black kid in the school, I'd reel off the fives and tenors and say, here's my fees. And if there was some left, it'd go in my pocket. <laughs> Those are my school days. Wow. So, gosh, there's a lot in here, Tony. So obviously, you know, uh, a very emotional and, and difficult, difficult start. Well, not as a start in life, actually, for you. Those early years with your Dutch, you know, foster parents were, were sounded idyllic, actually, um, in lots of ways. But it was then from that age of sort of six onwards, um, as you say, with, you know, your, your birth parents and how things got difficult for you. But, you know, the 45 years on the antidepressants and the sleeping pills and all of that stuff. Do you want to touch, do you want to talk about a, a bit more around that? Because I think for a lot of people listening, they will probably have, you know, an empathy for, for that. And it might be something they're going through themselves. Um, so I think it's a really important um, part of your, your life, obviously. I mean, 45 years is a hell of a long time. Um, but do you, are you okay to talk a little bit more about that, that, that side of things? Yes. Yes, of course. Um, because as you say, I think that's one of the things that shaped me in many mm. ways. When I left school, eventually, um, I'll just say something about the headmaster of that school as well, because after the house being locked up and I went back to school the next term, I did not have a wad of money to pay the bursa. And I went to the headmaster and I said, I don't know what to do. I said, I don't know where my parents are. And less him, the men just said, keep your head down study, don't get into trouble, and forget it. That man let me stay for two years at the school, finish my education with no fees. Wow. I went to his memorial service last year, no, sorry, year before last, and I met his wife and his children, and I just thanked them and said, mm. I can't thank you enough for what you're father did for me. Um, he was an amazing man. So, so I just had to say that as well. Mm. When I left school, I did not go to Cambridge or be a lawyer. <laughs> I went to North East London Polytechnic and I did psychology. Now that, that's an interesting thing because I suppose I was trying to work out why is I I <laughs> and why are people as they are and the way to do that, I thought, was to do psychology. Uh, the other thing was I was always crap at maths. I took my maths O-level six times before I got it. And I had to get it because I couldn't get on to course or to any particular course. And I was always told at school, you have to have a maths O-level. So got it eventually, but then didn't understand the difference between a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts. And I chose the Bachelor of Science. <laughs> Which had, <laughs> which had an unseen three-hour statistics paper at the end of it. 
<laughs> Good job you can laugh about these things now when you look back, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was a nightmare. Um, I could not understand what the statistics lecture was going on about. And luckily, I had this friend who I shared a flat with, and he said, look, I'll try and teach him a bit how I see it. I said, okay. He said, go and buy some beers. What? He said, go get some, some beers. So I came back with six cans of special brew. <laughs> <laughs> said, right, start drinking. We both started drinking. And he went through something called a three-way cross-nested analysis of variance, longhand, without computers. He said, this is how you do it. We went through it line by line. And I found that after I got to a certain point, it made sense. And I could do it without looking at the equation. I could just write the equations out and go through, through the problems like that. And it got to the point where I just thought, okay, I can do this. But then I realized I could only do it when I was in that certain state. Right. It's interesting that on the speaking course, we get told about getting into state. Yeah. And my state for that was a can and a half of special brew. And the strangest thing was outside the finals for the statistics paper, there, everybody's standing around drinking coffee, and I'm there with my special brew. And the lecturers are looking at me and they're shaking their heads and thinking, what is this guy doing? Um, but it worked and I went in and I was just at a certain level of calm and I could just do it. Now, when I sobered up afterwards, if you'd asked me to do it again, there's no way I could have done it. <laughs> and that was something that I then realized, which is that if you're trying to learn something complicated, and if you're too stressed, you won't take it in. If you get into a calmer state, it will go in easier. Now, maybe special brew is not the best way to do it. I've realized now there are other ways. Um, but that was quite a learning experience. Wow, yeah. And, and also, I mean, there's just a couple of things to pick up on, on Tony, as you're talking. And we're, we're going to get into sort of, you know, how things evolved, um, you know, further down the line for you uh, in terms of your, your life story and what have you. But interestingly, you know, you had um, a, a, quite a few influential people that really made a difference to your life. So one, the incredible headmaster at that school that had, you know, such, um, you know, he obviously saw something in you and he, he, he realised that actually he was going to be your sponsor to help you finish your education. I mean, what an incredibly kind, but also, you know, insightful uh, gentleman by the sounds of it so you had him and then of course you had your friend that picked you up when you know you you, you went back to the house and I mean I, I had goose pimples when you were talking about I could see you there like turning up and the house locked up and just literally not knowing at all what to do and the friend that kind of picked you up and said come and stay with us and then your friend at you know, at uni with the, you know statistics to help you so I think that you know there's so much in there around how important the people that we spend time with um, can make a radical difference to our life and the, and the sort of the crossroads that we might find ourselves at at different times. Um, and, and, and those those sort of influences, I mean, obviously you look back with great fondness um, around, around those people, but, you know, is that something that you've continued to sort of focus on about who you spend time around, Tony, as you've, you know, matured and got older? Um, has that been important to you? It's been incredibly important. Mm. Um, looking back, I can see that a lot of the people who I've ended up spending time with, it was unintentional at the time, but they, they have all played a part. Now, this is where my woo-woo comes in. It's as though somebody guided me to those people or dropped those people into my life and they have acted as guides or helpers in some way to help me get to where I need to get to next. Subsequently, and more recently, I've actually had to drop a lot of people that I used to spend a lot of time with. Yeah. And that's because, for instance, um, 
they couldn't understand what I was doing or why I had changed. And it was, oh, come on, let's go and get smashed every Friday night and, and so on. And mm. uh, it, as I changed, it didn't have the same appeal. And I realized it was just a habit. And I really didn't need to do that anyway. And there were better ways to spend my time. And one of the things that I think contributes to depression, I've realized with hindsight, is that if you don't have a why, or if you don't have a focus or something that is bigger than you that you want to achieve, you drift. And when you drift, you are I don't know, stuck in a job you don't want to do. You're spending time doing things that are not actually achieving anything to make you happy or to get anything out of life that you want. And again, some of that is to, to do with the people that you associate with and spend your time with. Mm. I found that increasingly, if I think about who I'm spending time with and who I want to be with, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, so it's almost, uh, I suppose, as you get a little bit older and wiser, and I think we all do this in life, you, you know, you, you're making a conscious choice as opposed to sort of just more going with the flow, which I think you tend to do when you're a bit younger and, and maybe have less, less wisdom, shall we say. But I think to, you're right, you know, to actually make a conscious choice and be very aware of, of the impact, um, I think is, is incredibly powerful. And I think for anyone listening, you know, you can have positive influences in your life and you can have negative influences in your life, can't you? And, you know, I think certainly talking about your parents and, and you know, some of that, that really hard time you went through, you could have let that drag you down as well. And, and clearly there was an impact, you know, with the antidepressants and, and what have you. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover that a bit more. But you also had a choice um, to as to how you responded to you know, that awful situation you are in. Uh, and I think that's the other thing. There is always a choice, isn't there, um, in life? Yeah. 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 So, 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 what, so in terms of the, you know, the antidepressants and the, you know, sort of your dealing with all those emotions and things that were going on, um, how did that, how did you sort of shift from where you were to sort of where you are now? Because clearly, People looking at you now, if you didn't talk about this stuff, possibly would never even guess uh, that you'd been through any of that. Um, so we judge people, don't we, all the time? You know, whether we like it or not, people are judging us. And sometimes, very often, people do not have a clue about what you've gone through um, and the struggles that you've had. So, so obviously, there's quite a difference between sort of where you were and where you are now. Uh, so do you want to just talk about that transition, Tony? Because I think that's going to be really helpful for people as well that might be struggling with some of, uh, some of these kind of areas themselves. Sure. Um, I think what I need to do is, is, as you say, go into the issue of pharmacology yeah. and the impact of that. And I also want to talk a bit about beliefs as well. Mm. And what beliefs you have make a huge difference to what you do. A lot of the beliefs that you have get put into your head or into our heads from an early age and they're self-limiting. And so, for instance, when um, my dad came back after seeing the primary school headmaster and said, he said, you're bright but not intelligent, he was furious mm -hmm. with him. Well, that's not my fault, exactly. Um, but I internalized that, and that was something that made, I think, learning, for me, a lot harder than it needed mm. to be. It's like driving with your foot on the brake. <laughs> you know, it's holding you back. And I think that yeah. a lot of us need to realize sometimes when those things happen. Um, with regard to, again, going back into the, the pills and things, antidepressants, I sort of left college, got the degree eventually, but then ended up homeless. And that for me was an awful thing again. I was, oh, crikey, homeless again, back on the street and sofa surfing and thinking, oh, Christ, how do I ever get out of this? And again, I came across a group of people 
um, bunch of hippies, if you like, and we're in a similar situation, and we set up a short life housing co-op. And I was the treasurer of that. And what happened is we saw a load of streets with boarded up houses and went to the council and said, well, why, why are we homeless? And you've got all these streets with nobody living in them. And um, we negotiated with them and managed to get these houses on a peppercorn rent. And we moved in, brought them up to habitable standard and stayed there until we wow. got it out. And I suppose that, that, again, was just people being brought into my life to say, you know, we'll help you out and you can help yourself out. Then from that, I was unemployed at the time as well. And I went to sign on one day and they said, we've got a job for you. And I said, oh, what's that? And they said, other side of the counter, start Monday. So <laughs> strangely again, just from being unemployed, the next week I'm working in an unemployment benefit office as a clerk and learning about how the system works. Hated it. Um, <laughs> but learned about how the system works. And then I saw a job advertised for a housing advisor. I thought, I'll have a go at that. And it was with a voluntary organization and it was advising people who were on the street and you had to ring around and find out where there were spaces in bed and breakfasts that would take homeless people for the night. And you'd have to do night duty and look up who might have spaces and tell them and so on. And so then I did that for a while and learned again about how the housing system worked. So now I knew about how the benefit system worked, knew how the housing system worked. And then from that, I got a job in local authority as a housing officer for a sort of possibly proper job. And proper is, as we're taught to believe, what a proper job is, as in you go to the office at nine to five and that, that's a proper job. Um, anyway, I found I was quite good at that. I rose from being a housing officer to the youngest and first black director of housing in the country at the age of 34. And I had to work with some interesting and challenging politicians in that time, one of whom um, was known for saying to people, get on your bike, might ring a bell with some people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this was in the area of Chingford, I will not name names. And he was then followed by a chap who was known mainly by his initials, IDS very interesting and challenging politicians to work with. And I've risen very quickly through the ranks to get to that role, and it was a nightmare. I was working round the clock. I was getting up almost before I went to bed, um, getting up probably four o'clock in the morning. I have to go to work and then get there about seven, then council meetings, which would keep you there, which would start until start at half past eight or so in the evening, you'd be there till two o'clock in the morning, rush home, couple hours sleep, off you go again, and managed to keep doing that for seven years. And that was a nightmare. Um, but during that time, I met somebody, got married and had a child and so on. Ended in divorce. She was an alcoholic and it was a nightmare. And my depression was getting worse and worse. So I was trying to keep this high level mad job going. I'm coming home to a house full of drink, strangers who I'd never seen before, parties, um, and a, a pretty awful situation. Then I sort of had a, a bit of a breakdown. Couldn't go to work for a while. Couldn't even get out of the house. A psychiatrist came to see me at home because I couldn't even get to the to see him and he just looked around all the devastation and the empty bottles from the night before and he just said you don't need a psychiatrist you need a lawyer so that was an eye-opener because I think what often happens is that what's seen as a medical problem it's not it's a social problem mm. or it's a mind problem which doesn't need pharmaceuticals now 
was popping all these pharmaceuticals. And at the same time, because I'm living with an alcoholic, I'm getting sucked into that, which goes back to what you're saying about who you associate. Mm. So now I'm starting to drink too much and taking all these antidepressants. Bad combination. Um, Anyway, ended up with two things that happened. One is that I tried to get away from her one evening. So what did I do? I went to a bar, carried on drinking, and on the way back from the bar, rolled my car down a hill and bashed cars either side of the road as I was going down. Woke up in hospital, two police officers there saying, you've been in an RTA. What do you mean, what's an RTA? Road traffic accident. And I didn't know what what earth they're on about. Um, Sort of came to gradually and saw the patchwork of my face stitched up all over the place, my arms, and was literally in a hell of a state. What happened subsequently was the big house and the big car that I had, the big car was obviously wrecked the right off. Big house that I had went in a divorce. My son was about seven at the time and I decided I could not carry on like this and that needed to do something and I'd hit rock bottom again. Then I lost my job. So then I lost my house, job and relationship with my son all bang in three easy moves over the course of a couple of months. Um, Then I didn't quite know what to do or where to go. So I had to start again. I managed to get a job as a play worker, which is quite strange. Never worked with kids before. Um, But through somebody I'd met, I managed to do that for about a year and a half or so. And it kept body and soul together until I came across this idea of um, consultancy. I thought, what do I know? I thought, I know all about housing. So then I became a housing consultant and I went all over the country for 10 years doing contracts with different local authorities and housing associations, made a ton of money again very quickly. And then I saw a permanent job back in London. I thought, I'll go and settle down. And then I'll be nearer my son and life would be rosy. <laughs> Mad thought. Um, because again, and again, one of the lessons from life is that there isn't a thing, a simple, stable thing as success. What happens is it's a continuum and you never actually reach the end. But we're all told, there's the goal. And when I get that, I'll be happy. When I've got that, I'll be happy. When I've got that house, I'll be happy. <laughs> and it's not true. And it's taken me a long time to work that out. And this was, again, one of my rude awakenings. So on my travels around the country for 10 years, I picked up a lady friend and said, I'm going to go and get a permanent job in London. Do you want to come and live with me? Oh, yes. So I came down and I said, but you have to get a job of some sort. And, you know, you can't just sit in my house and do nothing all day. Um, what are you going to do? Well, I thought about going to uni. Okay, go to uni. So went to uni and so on. And then I realised that, one, I was paying for everything. Secondly, she started coming in very late at night, being dropped off by strange guys. And that was starting again to have a pretty bad impact on my mental health. Mm. Then what happened is the crash of 2008-9, the contracts dried up. And without all the money coming in, all the bills started to pile up, including the one saying, uh, the repossession of your house is taking place in such and such a court. You're required to turn up for the hearing. Oh, my goodness, here we go again. <clears throat> and then at that time also, the lady decided that she was going to walk out the door because there was nothing left for her and pulled a grandfather clock that I had onto my head and went. Now, I had all these bills. Relationship, whatever it was, was just broken up. And I thought, what the hell do I do now? So, second episode with a bath, sat in a bath, filled it up with water, two bottles of wine, and all the pills I could find in the house, down in one. I woke up in the mental hospital, sectioned. To this day, I don't know how I got there. Wow. Wow. 
My gosh, Tony, I mean, to even talk about this stuff, um, you know, this this podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Um, and it takes incredible courage, I think, to be able to talk so candidly about times that have been so incredibly painful for you. Um, you know, absolutely. So I really appreciate you being so open um, about your story and, and some of the the lows and they're real to your word, use your words, rock bottom um, points that you, that you, you actually hit. Um, how do you bounce back from some of that then? Well, that's, again, uh, I've been very fortunate. I think that the right people have showed up at the right time. Now, when I came to in that hospital, thinking, what the hell's happened here? I didn't have any clothes. I just had a hospital gown on. I had no phone, no possessions, nothing. And I said, look, I, I need to go out. I need to get back home. And then I realized the ward was locked. Um, and then it dawned on me what had happened and that somebody must have found me or somebody must have reported it and I'd been picked up and taken from the house to the hospital. I'd been taken out of that bath where I thought I was going to finish my days. And somebody got me out. Still don't know to this day how. The time at the mental hospital was pretty horrific. People were screaming. There were some people sitting in a corner, just nodding their heads. Others were talking to themselves. There's one chap who just kept running around going, fire, fire, barbarians. And you know, it occurred to me he must have come from a war zone or something. And he had PTSD and he was mm. through his issues. And then with all the pills they kept giving me, they decided that it, it wasn't working. And I had to have electroconvulsive therapy. Now, what I'd found out prior to this, is I've been given it before. I remember this a number of times, but one of the things that it does is it actually destroys parts of your short-term memory. So I couldn't remember exactly what happened. I knew that I'd be taken into a place, I'd be lying down, they'd put some things on the side of my head, there'd be an anesthetist who'd put them over my mouth, and then, boom, I'd be out, and then life would carry on. I haven't done psychology, I should have realized exactly what this stuff was. But I was in no state to say, I'm not having it. I refuse to have that. And because they said, well, you're so depressed, you've just got to keep having it. I had 29 sessions of electroconvulsive therapy. <clears throat> wow. So I'd seen my doctor's notes and I saw this is what they did. And then I also saw a list of all the medications I've been on from the age of 14, listed. And I just thought, how on earth can this happen? How can I have been pumped full of all this stuff and been more or less used like a lab rat for the past God knows how many years? Now, I thought, how am I going to get out of here? And because I haven't got a phone or anything, and I saw that there's a computer in the room. And I went on this computer, I'm scrolling through this Facebook thing, and I come across a friend from school who I hadn't seen for 20 years or more. And I messaged him and said, I'm stuck in a mental hospital, could you come and spring me? <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know what he must have thought when he saw that, because they said I was not allowed to leave without being in the care of a responsible adult. I, I didn't know who the hell to call. And I just came across this guy. I said, could you come and help me? And he drove all the way down from Warwickshire to London to come and pick me up and get me out of there. And again, I don't know <clears throat> how I used to come across his name out of anybody else's name but he was the one and he came and got me out. So again, it's one of those situations. Yeah, gosh, wow. I mean, you know, there's, it, it, it's almost, 
Well, it's hard for anyone to imagine. You know, you've described it very, very well and very clearly, Tony, but it's very hard to sort of think and put yourself in the position that you were in if you've not been through that um, yourself. But I'm sure there are plenty of people that will gain great strength from hearing kind of what you've been through and the fact that, you know, at the point you felt there was no return and you decided to take your life because I guess you couldn't see an alternative at that point um, to say, well, now where life is full of opportunities and, and joys and things that you can, you can see hope and, and, you know, lots of positives. It, it is quite a night and day situation um, that you're facing. How much of, of, of what happened in your early years as a child do you think stayed with you through your adulthood and, and sort of had an influence on all of the things that you actually went through or the situations you were in and the people you were spending time with? How much of that came from those early years, do you think, with your, par- with your birth parents? Um, with my birth parents, I think one of the main things was that it was just so traumatic being wrenched mm. away by lovely foster parents and then with some people who are completely different in every conceivable way. And I, I think, I think what, that, what happened is that just taught me how to deal with pain. Now, what I was not able to do though was talk to anybody about it. And so it just went round and round and round and round. Mm. And thinking back, I am wondering whether because I just kept all that in, and just kept going, which is a lot of people who just keep going and going, why when it, at the age of 14, it all caught up with me. Mm. And I went into depression. And I, I didn't even understand depression at that time, but that was it. And then they put me on these different medications for the next goodness knows how long. Um, and I think one of the things that I learned from that, and which I'd like other people to take on if you're in this position is don't hold it all in, talk to somebody, find mm. somebody, be it a professional, be it a friend, <clears throat> somebody, because you have to let that stuff out at some point in some way. And if you don't, it's gonna come back and bite you very, very hard. And again, I think that was probably behind my suicide attempt. It was just <clears throat> having stored up everything, all the stress of the job, the failed relationships, the childhood, Bang, it all came together in one horrible mess at once. Um, and then it was too much. And then when I came out of the hospital, I had all these appointments, with the doctors, follow-ups, people visiting me at home and so on. And again, I have gaps, not quite sure what happened. Now, what happened subsequently was I met up with, again, somebody who I'd worked with many years previously, a lady, and she said, oh, what have you been doing with yourself all these years? That's all, I do my begin. Yeah, how long, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and 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 at that point then tony so this this lady that came in came back into your life um how's that worked out uh we're now married <laughs> <laughs> how wonderful how wonderful and and obviously you know let, let's just shift shift gear a little bit so you know you you're in a really good place now you know with a, with your lovely lady wife and everything that's happening in your life now um and but obviously that long period that you talked about, um, you know, has had a huge, profound impact on you, clearly. Um, but you're channeling it now into doing really positive, exciting things in your life um, and, and having some wonderful relationships along the way as well and uh, inspiring so many people through your, your journey. Can we talk about the, the business side of things as well now? Because there is a clear link between your personal experience in particular with the, you know, the medication that you were on for all those years and what you are now doing with your business, Total Body Health. Because I think, again, that's an interesting evolution, if you like, how you can take stuff that's gone on in the past 
and actually channel it into something incredibly positive and creative and something that coming back to your early point, Tony, around purpose and vision and using that to really keep you focused and on, on the good things that you can achieve in life. So can we talk a bit around the business and how that's shaped up and what that's all about? Sure. That, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, right. When I met up with my, who's now my wife again, um, we eventually then became romantically involved. And I said, look, I don't know what to do. I've got all these letters, all these bills. I haven't got a contract, don't know what to do. And she said, why don't you rent the house out and come and live with me? So after some thoughts, I thought, okay. So that's what I did. Now, luckily after that, after about six months to a year, I got a contract again and started to get some more regular work. The house, I'd rented it out and it was a three-story house. And unfortunately, it just kept getting wrecked. And the last time it happened, um, the lettings agent must have been on the take because I got a phone call from the next door neighbour said, you know, you really need to come and see what's happening with your house. So I drove by. Now, those of you who are landlords will understand this. The curtains drawn, bins overflowing, you know what's going on. It's been sublet, there are too many people there and whatever. So I rang up the lettings agent and said, look, you need to meet me down at the property and we need to sort out what's going on. So he said, okay, we're supposed to meet five to six. So at six o'clock, five to six, my mobile goes, so I'm driving there and it's the lettings agent. He's had a bereavement and so he can't meet me. So I said, well, I'm still going. And I pulled up outside the house and there was a young man smoking, standing in the doorway outside the front door. I said, specifically, nobody's to smoke in the property. Also, I didn't know who on earth he was. So I thought, okay, I've got to play this a bit cute. So I went up to him and said, hi, how are you doing? I said, uh, do you live here? He said, yes. I said, um, do you know who, who the landlord is? He said, no. I said, it's me. He says, oh, oh. I said, do you mind if I step in and have a look around? And he said, no, come in. Yes. So he's invited me in, so that's fine. So at that point, <laughs> I go in and I see all the furniture has been moved out of the living room, dining room, there's mattresses all over the floor, fridges installed, tellies all over the place. And I said, just, just walk me around, tell me who lives here. And he explained that there's a family living in that room, one in that room, up the stairs. The top floor, there was a bedroom with an ensuite. There's a lady living there with her two adult sons in that room. There were 16 people living in that house. Wow. That could have gone up like a tinderbox with all the overloaded electrical circuits and everything else. I just thought, that's, I've had enough. So um, I said to the lettings agent, I said, you come down here soon as. He said, well, I'll come tomorrow. I said, you come tomorrow. And I said, you bring me the legitimate tenant because he doesn't appear to be living here. And he just sublet it as soon as he got the tenancy and then rented it out to a bunch of other people. Wow. And then I just decided, sell the damn thing. And then that took us to the next chapter, which is, well, what should we do now with this money? Um, what do we know about housing? Okay. Uh, oh, there's somebody on Facebook here who's doing a property course. Okay, where is it? It's in town at a hotel. Okay, let's go and have a look at that. So off we went. Um, it wasn't the same property firm that we got trained by. Mm. Um, and we went there and eventually signed up for this and we got a coach. Now, the coach was for a year, quite a lot of money. Um, and again, the coach that I chose was wonderful. He was not sort of like a normal coach. 
On one hand, he'd send me in one week 60 calculations just to screw my head up again on ROCs, ROCs. <laughs> Not maths again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I said, I can't stand this. And he, he was sort of very, he's almost like a mystic, you know, and he said, think about it and think about how you're enjoying it. He said, it will come. Just stop getting stressed and it will come. And as he said, it started to get easier. But then he took me well away from that and started making me read books from by Joe Dispenza, T. Harvecker, um, you know, obviously Think and Grow Rich, Rich Man, Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all those things. And then I started to find that stuff rather more interesting than the property stuff. But one of the things that did transpire was that if we we're going to do this, we couldn't do it in London because the money doesn't go far enough. And he said, you need to get out of London, go somewhere else. So we decided that we'd go to Leeds. And my wife didn't like any of the properties that we saw in Leeds. But then I came across this lovely converted manor house in Halifax, which was not that far from Leeds. So we moved in there. Then we went to buy our first property and they were all excited about this. And then the solicitor wrote back and said, there are some complications. It's got a flying and a creeping freehold. And then we looked into how we could get around that and just thought, you know what, this, this, we're getting a message here. It's not going to work, this isn't. Yeah. And um, then not long after that, I was just sitting at home and I just curled up on the floor in a ball. And I said, what's the matter? I said, I can't pee, I can't pee. I need to pee, but I can't. And so she had to get me down to A&E and they said, hmm, looks like you've got a prostate issue here. Uh, we'll send you for some biopsies. And then they did something rather unpleasant to make me pee, which was a hell of a relief at the time. <laughs> um, then I, when I went to that property course, the person running it, said, the world doesn't actually work how you think it does. And he said, you might think I'm a bit mad because I'm a bit woo-woo. There's this mystic lady that I talk to and she guides me. If any of you want her phone number, let me know. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so he gives me a number and I speak to this lady and we're on the phone for three hours and she goes all through my life, she never met me, goes all through my life and says, this is what's happened to you and this is what's, and what you need to start thinking about is this, this and this, and you need to come off those pills. And, um, and said, I'm sending you, I said, here's the name and address of somebody, he's actually a, what do you call it? It's a sports psychologist um, who deals in motivation and things like that. He'll, he'll sort you out. So I went to see him and he said, right, come off all those pills, stop them all straight away. I said, wouldn't that make me ill? And he said, only if you think it will. <laughs> and he, he did kinesiology, which is muscle testing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's when somebody says, um, they make your body answer questions rather than your, your mouth. So for instance, he would put a particular medication in my hand and hold my arm and say, does my body like this? No, it doesn't. Your arm will either fall down or it will go or it will stay rigid. And through this muscle testing, you get an idea of what your body really likes and what it doesn't. You can do the same with food. And he did this and said, don't eat these foods, don't take those pills and so on. And he said, instead of the pills, what you need is minerals and vitamins. And he gave me a program of stuff to take for that. And he said, you need complete detoxing. And he said, I suggest you go and get some colonic irrigation. Radical sort of thing. Anyway, I found somebody in Leeds who did colonic irrigation, went to this lady and said, this is what I've been on. So on. she says, oh yeah, yeah. She says, good, I'm glad he sent you in this direction. I know him. And I explained to her about what I was going through. And she said, have you ever tried bioresonance? And I went, no idea, what's that? And she explained it to me that it's healing without pills and it works on frequencies based on the principles of quantum physics. Well, I didn't know what she was talking about, but by this time I'd try anything. The other thing is that I had a lot of problems with my back and I was taking on top of the 
antidepressants, I was taking tramadol and gabapentin for arthritis, slip disc and sciatica, great pains in the back as well. And she said, look, go and get some of this treatment, bioresonance, sort you out. So found someone who did it, went along, and lo and behold, it worked. And I thought, that doesn't hurt. Started spinning again, going to the gym. I thought, I can do that. Wait, where's the pain gone? And so then it started to become clear to me that I didn't need to be on those painkillers. I was also having cortisol injections in the back to try and stop the pain. Didn't have to have those anymore. I just thought, why has nobody ever told me this? Why does nobody know about this? And then I eventually said to the guy, look, this has worked. I said, could you teach me how to do this and get me one of those devices? I never, ever want to take, take, take those pills or pharmaceuticals again. He said, sure. So we had about nine months of teaching, going to him every week, learning about it, online course. And then I thought, I need to research this. And I found that five and a half million people every day in this country are taking pills for physical or mental pain. And I thought, a lot of those people probably don't need to do this. And if it's helped me, it can help others. Yeah, so that's now led to actually, you know, from your own experience with the bioresonance, actually setting up um, total body health, hasn't it, um, Tony? Which is, um, your, your, you've got your clinic in Wimbledon, which I think you're in the process of getting all that sorted, aren't you? So do you, do you want to talk us about the, about the business, the launch, um, what it can do for people, um, you know, so that actually, you know, those that are interested can, can absolutely find you? Because it sounds amazing. Okay. The main things that it can sort out, which I immediately talked to, was pain. And if you're on very heavy painkillers, the frequencies of your body can be determined. They can be worked out. And the frequency of whatever your illness is can be worked out. And so what the process does is harmonize your body back to its natural frequency. The thing is underneath all this is the human body is made to heal itself. And that's one of the things that we're not told. We're never taught this. We're taught, have a pill, have a pill. Mm. Because monetizing pharmaceuticals is a lot easier than monetizing natural health if you don't know about it. So having found out that so many people are on these pills, We've decided to go into this in a bigger way. At first, we started off hiring a room in a physiotherapy clinic. Luckily, the lady there was on board with it. She believes in it and said, yeah, please come and open up with me. So we did that. But then we looked into it further and thought, there's another device that does this. And maybe that's even better. So we got one of those as well. And then thought, actually, Let's get two. So we got two of those. So then we've got three, two the same and one different. And when you look at the physics of it, the more recent ones use what are called sine waves, which are literally like waves, smooth waves. And those are the frequencies that they send through to the body. The other one uses rectangular waves, sharp edged ones, which deliver a different type of frequency. And then having done further research, we find out that things like microwaves and some of the other electrical things, computers that we have around us, all deliver the rectangular ones, the sh sharp, hard-edged frequencies, which are not designed for the human body. Animals and people don't like them. And eventually they will have an impact. It's the same as have, you know, almost being microwaved if you do it enough. Mm -hmm it has on you. So we decided to buy these extra devices and now we thought, well, it doesn't fit in this one room here. So now we've had to seek further premises, which hopefully we just got finalized yesterday. And then another idea came to me in the shower the other week. 
this is where the ideas tend to come from. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, particularly with all the issues that are going on now with people's health, um, something that might make that even more effective is pumping people full of oxygen, particularly as people now have to walk around wearing masks and that stops a lot of the oxygen that you actually need going in. Whereas if you boost that through using an oxygen chamber and then give the bioresonance treatment, I thought that's double bubble, that's going to work even better. Mm. So now I have one of those on order and we're going to be bringing those together and also looking at nutrition and vitamins and minerals, stress, sleep, lifestyles generally, because that's what it is. It's total body health. And the pharmacological model says, for instance, if you've got a headache, take an aspirin. Now, if you give 100 people an aspirin, it's going to have a different impact on each of those 100 people. It's a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. With frequencies, everybody's got their own individual one. So from that, you can work out what's best for each person individually. Mm. And that's what we're Oh, fantastic. Well, I think it's it's incredible and it sounds like it's a really exciting venture. It, it you know, in talk about backing your product and service, you know, I mean, you 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 absolutely um are the epitome of what it can do um, and how it can help people. So I think you know that's gonna really, really mean a lot to your clients, to your customers that that you know, and you can really help them with their you know health and well-being. So that's fantastic, Tony. So where can people find you if they want to check out Total Body Health? Right. Um, the best thing to do at the moment is to contact me through my email, which is tcourtneybrown at yahoo.co.uk. That's T-C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y, brown, without an E, at yahoo.co.uk. The website for the business is just being built. And on that, you'll find further information about oxygen therapy and bioresonance. And I've got some videos that will be going up, including this one, and that will explain further about my life and natural health. Oh, fantastic, Tony. I mean, listen, I've um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. There's so much in here. I feel like you know we we need a second a second episode, a second interview to follow up, Tony, on on kind of how things go from here. So we should, if you're up for that, we should do that um, further down the track. <laughs> um, but you know, listen, you've you, you're an incredible person. You you've you speak so openly and candidly about the struggles that you face, but also you know the highlights as well. Um, that you've you've taken from that and to see you now flourishing having your purpose absolutely clear in the way you speak so passionately about all of this and and that you know you you're in a happy place um is is really amazing to hear and so inspiring for people so you know thank you for being so candid and um, i've just got a couple of final questions if i may tony um, so what would you think through that, you know, life incredibly uh, journey that you've talked about? What do you think has been the best piece of advice you've received? I think one of them is about going with your gut feeling. I think an awful lot of pressure is put on us to do right from the education system this is what you need to do. You need to work out what you want to be when you grow up. Well, from a very early age, how do kids know what they're going to be when they grow up? And particularly in this fast moving technological age, whatever they think of today will be obsolete tomorrow. And so it's going to be a different type of world that they're going to grow up in. And that's going to require a different type of education system altogether. And I think that's certainly looking at further education um, I think that's going to have to take a radically different track in future. Uh, it's probably not going to work as it always has in the past. Mm. So I think one of the things really is just tuning into your gut, be guided by that, be careful who you mix with, your environment and your surroundings, very, very important. And I think at the moment, 
the way I'm looking at this situation is, is it's almost Darwinian, which is a horrible expression, survival of the fittest. But if we look at things physically, um, mentally and emotionally and economically, that unfortunately is the way that things appear to be going. Those who are the most physically fit, mentally strongest and able to survive financially are the ones who are going to weather this storm. And so it's up to those who manage to get through this storm because you're able to, to help those who can't and to try and support them as best you can. Now, the other thing is that with regard to my background, some things that have run through really, really strongly um, is that when we expand, which we will do, the kind of people that we want to work with us need to have a similar mindset and a similar outlook. And so one of the things that we will be doing is saying, one week a year, everybody gets a week paid time off to go and work for things which are of particular significance to us. One of them being mental health, mm. another one being homelessness, third one being children, the fourth one being animals. So if you come and work for us and end up doing that, you'll get a week off to go and work voluntarily to support one of those charities in those areas. Oh, that's fun. Well, that's a fantastic incentive for people to want to be part of your team, Tony. That's for sure. Where do I apply? <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And just the final question, Tony, is what does brave, bold, brilliant mean for you? It means being true to yourself. It means not being swayed by all the, the pulls, the pushes, the BS that you're going to get from everybody, be they friend, foe, family, media, or whatever. Work out who you are first. Now, easier said than done, perhaps. It's taken me a hell of a long time. But once you find that, then stick with it and just go with the flow. And... When you do that, when you're true to yourself, you'll find that people, situations, circumstances will help you on your way. You'll know when you're not doing this because goodness me, you will suffer. One way or another, you'll find difficulties that you don't need to have. And uh, it's taken me a long time to find that out, but if it can help anybody else avoid them, I'll be really happy. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, you certainly are brave, bold and brilliant, Tony. And um, I really appreciate you having the conversation with me, sharing your journey, because it's going to be so helpful to so many people. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you, Jeanette.